Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by Mint Mobile. For people who hate their phone bill and are ready to cut the ties with big wireless, Mint Mobile has your new wireless plan for just $15 a month. And to get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by a brand new sponsor, Aura Frames. Aura Frames makes digital picture frames designed to easily fill your home with photos of family and friends shared instantly from an app. You can get $30 off your order by going to AuraFrames.com using the promo code GOLD. The markets finished a Jobs Friday lower on the week, and I will get to the details on the weaker than expected, at least the headline number was weaker, jobs report later in the podcast. I want to start off, though, by talking about the markets. In fact, the NASDAQ so far for the first three days of December, this is the worst three days of December in about 20 years for the NASDAQ. Now, the broader market, not quite as weak as the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is down 2.7% for the first three days of December. And that compares to a 0.6% decline for the S&P overall. But if you just look at the Dow, the Dow is actually up about a third of 1% on the week. Russell 2000 also getting hit pretty hard, down 1.8%. The reason, of course, the Russell 2000, a bit more sensitive 
to rising rates, at least the way it impacts the domestic economy, that is what is really weighing down the tech-heavy NASDAQ. Because as I've mentioned on this podcast, when interest rates go up, it has a disproportionate impact on growth-oriented stocks that are delivering their returns into the future. Because now the opportunity cost of waiting for those distant returns is increased as rates go up. Of course, rates haven't actually gone up. All that's happening is that the Fed is talking about potentially raising interest rates a little bit sooner than it otherwise might have expected. But what this really amounts to is a tightening of monetary policy. Even though nothing has actually changed, we still have ultra-loose monetary policy. Rates are still at zero. Uh, The Fed is still doing QE. At this point, just talking about making a loose monetary policy less loose in the future, well, that constitutes tightening policy. And that is what is driving the markets down. I don't think it's the Omicron virus. In fact, a lot of people are already talking about the fact that this Omicron virus may actually turn out to be a blessing in disguise. I mean, who knows what the science is ultimately going to show. But so far, the people who have contracted this variant, it's been very mild. And what some people are hoping is that since it seems that it spreads very easy, maybe even easier than Delta or the original COVID, but it's even more mild as far as the symptoms, if this variant could end up being the dominant strain because it's that much easier to transmit, it may actually make the situation better because more people will get it, but fewer people will be hospitalized and even fewer people will die. So maybe it'll make COVID even more like the flu than it already is. But one of the reasons that you can tell that it's really not Omicron, it's Fed tightening, is look at what's happening to these stay-at-home stocks, right? These are the stocks that benefited from the original COVID. And in fact, the very first day the markets had a chance to react to the Omicron virus, those were the stocks that actually rallied. The overall market was down, the reopening stocks in particular, but the stay-at-home stocks had a big rally. And if you recall, I said on that podcast the day after that reaction, I thought it was a head fake. I thought it was a good opportunity to sell those stocks if you still had them. And in fact, I even said that they looked like a good opportunity for people to get short because the rally made no sense to me in the context of what was already happening with those stocks. Earnings were already disappointing and the initial reaction was just a bubble and it didn't make sense to me that we would repeat that bubble, especially since the air was already coming out. And if you look at what's happened so far in December now, the stay-at-home stocks are among the biggest losers so far this month. In fact, the biggest loser yesterday on Friday, because I'm recording this podcast on a Saturday morning, but the biggest loser was DocuSign, and that was one of the darlings of the stay-at-home trade. That stock was down 42% yesterday in one day. Stock's down to about 135. That stock hit a high of 314, I think exactly three months ago. Stock is down 57% in three months. 
But take a look at another one of the stay-at-home darlings, Zoom. In fact, I talked about this one also on my last podcast. It was down 4% today, a new 52-week low. Stock's at 183. This stock was at 588 back in October of 2020. So it's now down just under 70%, a vicious bear market with no bottom in sight for Zoom. But one of the biggest losers, Robinhood, that stock down another 10%. The stock has been hitting a series of new lows recently. Again, disappointing earnings. That stock was at 85 about four and a half months ago. It's now down 75% in four and a half months. And I remember Wall Street loved this stock when it came public, right? CNBC was singing his praises. This was a universally heralded stock. This was a great moment. Also, a bit of a crypto play in here as well as just a meme stock play. And now the air is quickly coming out of that bubble. So again, these types of stocks are most heavily impacted by a tighter monetary policy, and that's why they're going down. In fact, when I mentioned that so far for the NASDAQ, this is the worst December in about 20 years, that means it's worse than December 2018. And December 2018 was the worst December for stocks going all the way back to the Great Depression. Now, we haven't finished December yet. We're still early in December. But what's happening in December 2021 reminds me a lot of what was happening in December of 2018. Because back then, the Fed was tightening monetary policy. And it was actually tightening. It wasn't just talking about raising rates. It was raising rates. And in fact, the Fed raised rates in December by 25 basis points, it moved them up to two and a half percent. Now, that was the high water mark from the tightening campaign, which began from zero and saw rates gradually increased in quarter point increments, mostly uh, during the term of Donald Trump, up to two and a half percent. And the Fed continued to hike rates, even in the face of economic data that would suggest that maybe these hikes weren't appropriate if the Fed were in fact data dependent rather than on autopilot. And the Fed was ignoring an adverse reaction in the market because the market was tanking in December, yet the Fed followed through with its December rate hike anyway. And when it raised rates in December, it gave all indications that it would raise them again at its next meeting, that nothing had changed, that the Fed didn't care about weakness in the market because it certainly had an opportunity to acknowledge that weakness by calling off the December rate hike. But instead, it went through with it. It stayed on script and continued to read from that script, oblivious to the market, which is why the market kept selling off. And in fact, I commented myself that I thought the Fed was going to regret that rate hike and that it would be the last. In fact, when I was on Fox Business three days, I think, two or three days before the Fed decision, I mentioned that I believed that the Fed would probably raise rates again in December. 
but that regardless of whether or not it raised rates in December, whatever it did, it would be the last rate hike because it was my prediction even before the Fed made the December 2018 hike that its next move would be to cut rates. And of course, I ended up being correct on that. And the reason I believed it was because I saw the way the market was reacting to tighter monetary policy. I knew the market was way overpriced based on how low interest rates had been for so long. And so now that the Fed was letting the air come out of the bubble, there was a lot more air to come out. But I knew that the Fed would not allow that to happen, that at some point, if the markets fell hard enough, the Fed would be forced to do an about phase and reverse. And that's exactly what happened because by January of 2019, the Fed basically came to the rescue of the market exactly the way I thought it would and basically put the rate hikes on hold. So it was no longer on this autopilot. It wasn't going to raise rates right away. And that kind of placated the markets. But even with that softening of its stance, which I guess amounted to an ease because the Fed told the markets that it would be less aggressive with future rate hikes. So it walked back the pace of rate hikes and that amounted to an easing. The market started to rally. But even then, in January of 2019, the market still expected the Fed to resume the rate hikes. Most of the Wall Street firms were still looking for, I think, three rate hikes in 2019. Maybe some had just two, but that was not as many. I think they expected four rate hikes in 2019 before the Fed walked back the hike strategy in January. But I kept saying, no, we're not going to get any hikes. In fact, it was at a January conference in Vancouver where I actually made a wager because people thought it was so incredible that I would forecast that the Fed was about to cut rates when everybody knew they were going to raise rates that the moderator ended up getting me to make a bet uh, with Brent Johnson for one gold coin on the direction of the Fed's next move. So if the Fed hiked, Brent was going to win. And if the Fed cut, I was going to win. Of course, I said I should get odds because nobody believes the Fed is going to cut. It seems like it's a foregone conclusion. They're going to hike. And I ended up winning that bet because in August of 2019, the Fed finally cried uncle and cut rates. It went down 25 basis points from two and a half down to two and a quarter. And then it had another quarter point cut in September down to 2% and a third quarter point cut down to one and three quarters. And that was in October of that year. But if you remember when the Fed first began those cuts, it referred to it as a mid-course correction. So basically the Fed said, look, we're just correcting a little bit, but we're staying on course. And ultimately we're going to start to raise rates again so that two and a half percent isn't the peak. We just had a little bit of a mid-course correction, you know, and then we're going to continue on course to normalize rates. So the markets at that time still expected that eventually the Fed would bring rates above 2.5% because we were still on course to normalize rates. We just needed one step backwards before we could make two steps forward. Now, I called out the Fed immediately. I said, this is not a mid-course correction. This is the first step 
on the road back to zero. As far as I know, I am the only person who was saying that, at least in the financial media. I mean, nobody on major financial talk shows was coming out and saying, yep, this is the first step, we're going back to zero. I was the only one that I know of that was saying that publicly. Now, there were probably some other people who might have said it privately, but they didn't get the type of exposure that I do. Not that I get a lot on the mainstream media, but at least I get some. And I was the only one out there who was saying this. And of course, I was saying it all the time on my podcasts. And anybody who doesn't believe me, just go back and listen to my podcasts from mid-2019 when the Fed was BSing everybody about this mid-course correction, I basically said, no, the Fed is just making this up. It can't come out and say that we're going back to zero, uh, but that's what's going to happen. And that is what ultimately happened. Now, it took COVID for the Fed to actually complete the journey to zero because after COVID hit, we got the Fed initial move in rates. They went from one and three quarters down to one and a quarter. Right. That was supposedly to show how serious they were because they made a 50 basis point cut. You know, normally they just did a quarter point and this was 50 points. But of course, that wasn't enough because the following month in April, the Fed went all the way to zero in one fell swoop. But, you know, if it hadn't been COVID, it would have been something else. I knew the Fed was going to zero. I just didn't know what the excuse would be what they would blame it on. I knew they would blame it on something. They would come up with a reason, and they did. I mean, COVID. COVID was the gift that keeps on giving because it allowed the government to do a lot of things, including allowing the Fed to go to zero without losing its credibility because, after all, nobody could have possibly forecast COVID. And so, yes, the Fed was going to resume the rate hikes. It really was a mid-course correction, but then COVID came out of left field and took us off course. And so that's why the Fed had to go to zero. But again, the Fed could always come up with an excuse to explain what it did. But I said from the beginning, when the Fed went to zero, they would find an excuse to justify why they did it. They can never tell the truth that we were going to go to zero anyway, no matter what, because we have a gigantic bubble and the air was coming out of it because we pricked it by raising rates. And so we had to come up with a reason to justify going back down to zero because we can't tell the truth. And so they have to come up with a justification for a lie. And I nailed that whole thing exactly. The Fed did exactly what I said they were going to do. And they made up a BS excuse because, again, The correct monetary policy in the face of COVID was a contraction in the money supply, was tighter money because the economy was imploding. We were producing less stuff and supply was going down. Demand needed to come down with it. Instead, the Fed goosed demand because it really had no choice because otherwise it would be a complete economic implosion based on the bubble that the Fed had inflated. And in fact, Part of the justification, too, for the so-called mid-course correction with rate cuts was that the Fed said that inflation was still too low. Amazing, right? Inflation was not high enough, and that was a reason that they needed to cut rates was to make sure we had even more inflation. And now look at inflation. It is the biggest problem confronting the Fed, 
and they did it to themselves. They deliberately adjusted policy to make inflation higher. Remember, I kept saying, be careful what you wish for when it comes to inflation because you just might get it. Well, the Fed got their wish and now they're having to deal with it. But my point is that the Fed was forced to do an about face after staying on script for tighter monetary policy caused the markets to implode, which caused the Fed to reverse policy. That is exactly what I believe is happening now. The Fed is continuing to stay on script of a faster taper and that liftoff is now going to happen a little bit sooner. And the Fed is not veering from that despite multiple opportunities to do so. And so the markets are tanking. And I think this is just the beginning until the Fed ultimately again cries uncle and comes to the rescue of the market by easing. This holiday season, the best deal in wireless can only be found at Mint Mobile. Right now, when you switch to Mint Mobile and buy a three-month plan, you'll get another three months for free. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans that start at just $15 a month. We've been using Mint Mobile long before this holiday season, but if you're not, this is the perfect time to switch. Just think about the additional savings. The plan is already super cheap, but now it's even cheaper because when you buy three months, you get another three months absolutely free. That's why this plan makes the perfect holiday gift. By going online only and eliminating the traditional costs of retail, Mint Mobile passes significant savings on to you. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. With Mint Mobile, you can choose the amount of monthly data that's right for you and stop paying for data that you never use. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And for a limited time, when you buy a three-month Mint Mobile plan, you get three additional months for free by going to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless spill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com gold. Now, in fact, Powell had an opportunity to walk back his supposedly hawkish testimony before the U.S. Senate on Tuesday. And I talked about that on my Wednesday podcast. But then on Wednesday, Pal and Yellen, again, the dynamic duo or not so dynamic duo, uh, were testifying before the House. And during the Senate testimony, that's when Pal supposedly tightened policy by retiring the word transitory when it comes to describing inflation. So the Fed no longer views inflation as transitory, meaning it's permanent, But since the Fed is committed to vanquishing inflation, well, if it's no longer going to vanquish itself, now the Fed is going to have to use its tools to vanquish it. And that is what Powell said. The Fed is going to use its tools to make sure that this inflation problem goes away. And that's what's hurting the market. It's the fear that the Fed is going to use those tools because those tools are very disruptive to an overpriced market, particularly these momentum high-flying stocks like the ones that populate the NASDAQ. And also other uh, risk assets are going to be impacted 
cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin in particular. I'll talk about that later in this podcast. For now, I just want to stay on point that Powell saw the adverse market reaction. He had an opportunity to see the way investors, Wall Street, economists, the way everybody was interpreting what he said. And if he didn't like that interpretation, he had the opportunity to dial it back, which the Fed does a lot. The Fed sends out a trial balloon and they don't like what happens to it. It crashes, it burns, and then they backtrack and uh, they change their stance. So a lot of people probably thought that Powell was going to do that when he testified before the House. But not only did he not do that, he continued to push this narrative that it's full speed ahead with a faster taper and liftoff is going to come sooner. And this basically amounts to a tightening, which really shows you how low the bar has been lowered when it comes to what constitutes tightening, because it's not just actually raising rates, which is what the Fed was doing last time. It's just talking about raising rates in the future, but talking about raising them in the future sooner in the future than you were talking about raising them before. So it's all talk yet it somehow amounts to a tightening. But again, I've talked about this before. Less loose is not tight. The Fed still has its foot on the gas. Even if it's easing up on the gas, it's not slamming on the brakes. These are inflationary policies, yet the market now believes that the Fed is going to withdraw these inflationary policies a little bit sooner. As a public person, I am hyper aware of safety and security. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays offline. Delete Me is a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web, and in the process, helps prevent potential ID theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports showing what information they found, where they found it, and what they removed. Delete Me isn't just a one-time service. Delete Me is always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information that you don't want on the internet. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. Now at a special discount for my listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com gold and use the promo code gold at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash gold and enter code gold at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash gold, code gold. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. 
Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com slash gold today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash gold. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Basically, the extent of this is that the taper will wind down maybe two months sooner than the Fed had indicated. So it was supposed to finish maybe June or so of 2022. So maybe they'll finish in April or May. And since the Fed is not going to start hiking rates until it is completely tapered QE to zero, the date of the first rate hike has now been moved forward also. So maybe instead of happening in July, maybe it'll happen in June, maybe even May, something like that. So that is what the markets are reacting to. But what's so ridiculous about that is the idea that even if the Fed does do that, assuming the markets allow the Fed to do that, that that would actually work, that that would be successful. Because if you look at the way gold is trading, the way the dollar is trading, even the broader markets, investors are not worried that the Fed's inflation battle is going to have any collateral damage for the overall market or for the U.S. economy. Just some of these high-flying momentum stocks, air coming out of that bubble, but everything else is going to be fine, which is completely ridiculous because A, there is no way that the Fed is going to fight inflation by raising interest rates 50 basis points in the back half of 2022. It's just not going to happen, especially if it spends the time between now and mid-2022 throwing more gasoline on that inflation fire. Yes, it'll throw less gasoline than it has been throwing, but it's still going to put more gasoline on a fire that's already raging, so it's going to get bigger. So there's no way you're going to douse this inferno with a couple of quarter-point rake hikes in the back half of 2022. It is ridiculous to think you can do that. Even if you believe the government numbers, which you should not believe because they're complete nonsense, inflation is 6%. The worst it's been in over 30 years. How are you going to fight an official inflation of 6% by moving interest rates up to a half a percent? You can't. But again, the battle is actually harder to fight because the real rate of inflation is well north of 10%. You're not going to put that genie back in the bottle with a half a percent interest rates. I mean, interest rates, real rates, will still be historically negative even after those rate hikes. So the only way that the Fed could actually successfully fight inflation 
which is the bet that markets are making right now, right, looking at the price of gold, would be for a much more aggressive tightening. Rates would have to rise much further. They would have to go a lot higher than the 2.5% that caused everything to collapse in 2018. That was the high water mark of that tightening cycle. I don't think we could get anywhere near 2.5% this time because if 2.5% crushed the economy in 2018, imagine what it would do in 2022 because the economy accumulated massive amounts of debt during those four years. So it's far more leveraged. It's a much bigger bubble. And if that smaller bubble couldn't survive a 2.5% rate, how could this much larger bubble survive that rate, let alone a rate actually high enough to do something about the enormous inflation problem that we currently have? So if the markets actually understood just how high rates would have to go to successfully fight inflation, the markets would have to be crashing right now. But if the markets were crashing based on the anticipation of what the Fed would actually do to fight inflation, they'd have to call it off because they'd have to rescue the stock market. In fact, not only the stock market, they would have to rescue the economy because what if the economy started to price in an aggressive hiking campaign? The bond market would start factoring that in right now. They wouldn't wait for the Fed to do it. They would anticipate that and start baking those higher rates into the cake right now. What would that do to the economy? It would implode. I mean, think about what would happen if interest rates went up substantially. We have record amounts of leverage right now in the economy. And everybody who has debt would have to pay much higher payments on that debt. Yes, some of the debt is fixed long term, but a lot of that debt is short term and it would be adjusted substantially higher. Also, what would happen to the value of stocks and real estate? Go way down wait, with interest rates way up. So think about banks. They've loaned out a lot of money and they have stocks or real estate as collateral. Interest rates go up. The borrowers now can't really afford to repay the loans. And when the bank forecloses, the security is not there. The collateral is lost value. And so there's huge losses. This is a financial crisis even worse than the one we had in 2008, which is why the Fed has to pretend that it can fight inflation by barely raising interest rates, and the market has to believe what the Fed is pretending, but it is sheer nonsense. And the question is, when will the markets come to terms with this ugly reality? Aura Frames makes digital picture frames designed to easily fill your home with photos of family and friends shared instantly from an app. The frame is fast and easy to set up, once you receive it, you can download the app, connect the frame to Wi-Fi, and invite family members or friends to share photos. Upload more than 10,000 photos and videos with no storage limit. Aura keeps your photos secure and makes it easy to control who has access to your frame. Privately share photos anywhere, anytime with the Aura app. It's actually more secure than email. There's no limit on how many people you can invite. When a family member or friend signs up, you can preload photos and invite them ahead of time to see the photos, which they will then be able to upload immediately when they turn on the frame. The high-resolution screen makes your photos look their best. Every frame comes in a beautiful gift-ready box with free three-day shipping. That makes Aura a great gift for the holidays, birthdays, Mother's Day, 
or any special occasion. The Aura app is compatible with iOS and Android. Aura has auto-dimming to adjust brightness for the room and to turn off at night when you turn out the lights to save energy. Plus, they have a 45-day happiness guarantee so you can try any frame risk-free. I've already got two frames in my house and they really make great additions to the rooms and enable me to really look back on a lot of fond memories. So get $30 off your order by going to AuraFrames.com using the promo code GOLD. That's $30 off your order at AuraFrames.com, A-U-R-A, frames.com, use the promo code GOLD. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I got to get to the jobs report. After all, this was a jobs Friday. We got the November non-farm payroll report. And pretty much everybody was expecting a very strong number for November as far as the headline print on the number of jobs created. The consensus was for 545,000 jobs. In fact, we did get a strong ADP report that came out on Wednesday. And so that was validating the idea that the government number would also be strong. But we ended up with a number of just 210,000 jobs. That's one of the weakest jobs numbers we've had in many, many months. I think it's maybe the weakest of the post-COVID recovery below the low end of consensus. The range was 306,000 up to 625,000. We did get a slight upward revision to the prior month, but not that much from 531,000 to 460,000. But Balancing out the weaker than expected headline number on payrolls was a much lower unemployment rate. The unemployment rate, which was at 4.6% in October, was expected to inch down to 4.5% in November. Instead, it fell sharply all the way down to 4.2% in November We're almost down now to the same unemployment rate that we had pre-COVID. That was something like 3.6 around there, but we're getting closer. This is the lowest that official rate has been since COVID. In fact, even the U6 rate, which is far more representative of the true unemployment rate, although it still understates it, that rate dropped from 8.3% down to 7.8%. And if you don't remember the difference between U6 and the official number, U6 counts people who are working part-time but who want to work full-time but can't find full-time employment. It counts them as being unemployed. And it also counts the discouraged workers who are not working. They would be looking for a job, but they've given up, right? They don't think there's work out there, and so they're not looking. And so those people are counted. But they're only counted if they've given up for a year or less. So anybody who's been unemployed for more than a year, they would like a job, but they stop trying because they don't think there's any jobs out there. They're really unemployed. They used to be counted as being unemployed once upon a time, but they're no longer counted even in the U6. They're not there. So the real unemployment rate is obviously much higher than 10%. I don't really know where it is, uh, but it's nowhere near what the government claims. But regardless, there was a big drop in those official numbers, despite the fact that we barely had any jobs being created. Manufacturing jobs were supposed to be 45,000. 
plus we only got 31,000 and we actually downward really revised the 60,000 that we were told were created in October down to 48,000. So the upward revision all came from the service sector. That's where there were additional jobs notched on. Now looking at the labor force participation rate, that also notched up. So despite the fact that only 210,000 people found jobs and that the unemployment rate plunged to 4.2, we still saw an increase in labor force participation. If you just looked at those numbers, you would have assumed that maybe labor force participation went down and that's why the unemployment rate went down because we didn't create a lot of jobs. So how did we lower unemployment? Well, maybe some of the people who used to be counted as being unemployed left the labor force and therefore they're no longer counted. But if you look at the household survey, which is another report that we get, according to that survey, 101 million jobs were added during the month and the labor force increased by 594,000 jobs. So that is at odds with the official report. Now, normally, like I'm watching on CNBC, normally they always take the side of the official report and they dismiss the household survey, but not so yesterday because there's Steve Leisman, right? Their, their senior economic commentator. He came out and said, you know what? He thinks it's the household survey that's got it right this time. He doesn't believe uh, the low numbers coming from the government, and he expects to see some big upward revisions in future months. We'll see if he's right. It's interesting, of course, that they're always looking at the economic glass as half full. If the numbers were the other way, you can bet they would be embracing the government numbers and rejecting the apparent dichotomy from the household survey. But I will admit that there is a bit of a dichotomy here. So it's really hard to say whether the report really is as weak as the headline suggests, or there's some strength that's actually hidden beneath the numbers. Couple of more details from that report. Average hourly earnings rose less than expected. They were supposed to rise by 0.4. They rose by 0.3. And year over year, The rise was 4.9 in October. That was supposed to go to 5%. That went down to 4.8%. Now, that might initially be seen as good news because, oh, less wage pressures for the Fed to worry about, but it may be more bad news for workers whose cost of living is going to continue to rise faster than their incomes because there's no real indication that the pace of price increases is slowing. But if wage gains are slowing, that means real wages, which are falling anyway, are going to fall even faster. Also clouding the picture a bit on whether or not the economy is weakening as measured by the jobs report, we did get two other economic releases or three actually on the day that came out above expectations. Let me just focus on two of them. The ISM service index for November That was supposed to come in at 65, which would have been a decline from the 66.7 in the prior month. Instead, that came out at 69.1, blowing away the estimates. The consensus range was from a low of 62 to a high of 67. And factory orders, which were supposed to come in at up 0.5, they came in at up 1%, double estimates, and again, above the upper range, which went from minus 0.1 to up 0.8. And in fact, they revised up the prior month that was originally 0.2. 
that was revised to up 0.5. So a lot stronger data there. And I think that also was weighing on the market, particularly on the tech-heavy NASDAQ, and prevented the bad news on the jobs number from being good news because it was offset by other stronger data that would suggest that the Fed will continue to do what it's promising to do, and that is fight inflation by ending QE a couple of months faster and starting its itsy bitsy rate hikes a couple of months sooner as if that could actually do anything to fight inflation it can't but what it can do is take the air out of a tech bubble and that's obviously already taking place looking at the reaction in the gold market to the weaker than expected headline jobs number Gold initially spiked, as you would expect, as soon as traders got a look at that number and it was below estimates, the computers hit buy and gold moved up about 10 bucks very quickly. It then proceeded to sell off because every time there's a gold rally, everybody wants to sell it, of course, because the Fed is fighting inflation and that fight is going to be bad for gold. Gold is the one collateral damage that the markets expect is going to happen. And so you got some selling. But the interesting thing was, once gold went negative, the buyers came back. I never saw it down more than maybe a buck, two bucks at the most. And gold ended up finishing the day higher. Gold was up 14 bucks or so, closed at 17.82.60. And gold, unlike the NASDAQ, is up on the month of December. We're up about 10 bucks. I mean, nothing spectacular but at least it's not down. Silver, on the other hand, is down about 20 cents on the month, but it managed a 15 cent gain on the day closing the week at 22.52. But what was really interesting was the price action in Bitcoin. And initially, when the jobs number was released, there was an immediate spike in Bitcoin, about 1.5%, just like gold, a little bit bigger than the gold move. It spiked up. I think the high was about 57650 and it was about 56800 or so just before the data came out. And I think what happened there is you had some of the Bitcoin pumpers. They always like to create the false illusion or push that narrative that Bitcoin is digital gold. And so they want Bitcoin to react to market news the same way that gold does. So bad economic news is supposed to be bullish for gold because it slows down the Fed and therefore it should also be bullish for digital gold. And so they wanted to get Bitcoin uh, to rise too. But they also want to sucker in some buying. To me, it looked like another classic Bitcoin pump and dump. In fact, I tweeted that out after I saw the move. I thought that a dump was coming because it looks like the insiders suckered in some buying. Aha, you see, Bitcoin is going up, weaker than expected jobs numbers. By Bitcoin, some buying came in and that enabled the selling. And boy, was I right because we had another massive dump in Bitcoin in fact, by the time the U.S. stock market closed for the day, 4 o'clock Eastern time, Bitcoin was down about 6% from that spike. We were about 54000 down from the 57650 The two new Bitcoin ETFs, both of those hit new lows uh, since they've existed. They were down over 6% on the day. Those ETFs are now down about 24% 
from the highs they hit about three weeks ago in November. So solidly in bear markets, despite all the fanfare when they were unveiled, they're already in bear markets. But that was just the beginning of the Bitcoin collapse. Because later that night, or maybe real early Saturday morning, right, depending on your time zone, Bitcoin flash crashed. In 45 minutes, it dropped over $10,000 to slightly below 42000 That was a 20% decline in less than 45 minutes. Crazy. Bitcoin was down at its low point. It was down 40% from the record high it hit a couple of weeks ago, right? It got to 69,000 and it took two weeks for the markets to go down by 40%. I mean, nothing like that has ever happened in gold. I mean, gold doesn't go down 20% in 45 minutes. How anybody can say Bitcoin has anything in common with gold, that it's a store of value, that it's an inflation hedge. Oh yeah, by the way, it could drop 20% in 45 minutes. It can go through a 40% protracted bear market in the span of two weeks. You know, at 42,000, where it was at its lows last night, Bitcoin was 35% below its April 2021 high of 65,000. That's a 35% decline over eight months. You know, all these Bitcoiners are trying to claim that gold has proven that it's not an inflation hedge because so far in 2021, Gold's down about 6%, right? So gold has fallen 11%, and the Bitcoiners are saying, look, we've had all this inflation, yet gold is down 6%. Well, how much inflation have we had in the last eight months, yet Bitcoin dropped 35%? That's much bigger than gold. So if a 6% drop in gold proves gold's not an inflation hedge, what does a 35% drop in Bitcoin prove when it dropped 35% in an even shorter time period? Obviously, you got nothing but hypocrisy uh, coming out of the Bitcoin crowd. Now, as I speak, Bitcoin has recovered. It's about 48,000, uh, so well off the 42,000 low. But the interesting thing is, ever since that flash crash, Bitcoin has yet to rear its head above 50,000. So serious technical damage done to Bitcoin and lots of overhead resistance We'll see how much longer that 42,000 low ends up holding. Of course, El Salvador came out and bought the dip once again. Of course, they announced they bought the dip last week as well. I mean, they keep buying these dips. Well, they're going to keep on coming. Eventually, El Salvador is going to run out of money. I'm sure MicroStrategy, they're buying the dip as well. They have to, right? They're pot committed, as I said. They have to buy every dip, even if they have to borrow money to do it. But eventually, a lot of people are going to stop throwing good money after bad. You know, I made an appearance yesterday on Anthony Pompliano's podcast, the best business podcast. I was there also with Peter McCormack, another big Bitcoin guy. And the reason I did this is because Pompliano's studio is here in Miami. And I happen to be in Miami most of the week for Art Basel. And so because I was here, Anthony said, hey, why don't you stop by my studio here in Miami? And I got Peter McCormick here and it'll be fun. So I agreed to come. And by the way, the crypto community has completely taken over Art Basel. I mean, they have a huge presence here, not just Bitcoin and crypto, but the ETFs. And I mentioned this or tweeted this out on Thursday that I thought that 
the flamboyance of this whole thing was yet another example of a major market peak that, you know, you got football stadiums now being named or basketball stadiums after crypto companies, very reminiscent of the peaks of the dot-com bubble or the real estate bubble. So the Bitcoin community converging on Miami uh, for Art Basel, again, a show of opulence and wealth. They've got all this money to spend. Why? Because you're at the tip of a bubble. And when that happens, the people who have been in the bubble always have the most amount of money to spend, but they never recognize the signs of a top. And these guys, Pompliano and McCormick, are whistling past this Bitcoin graveyard. I mean, they're saying one ridiculous thing after another, and they're shocked that I don't believe it. I mean, the stuff they're saying makes absolutely no sense. It's easily torn apart. There is no real logic. I mean, it's all smoke and mirrors, and it's easy to blow the smoke away and reveal the mirrors. But they still can't see it because that's how big this bubble is and how deep they're buried in it. Because, you know, when you are in the bubble, especially the epicenter of the bubble, you have no idea that it's a bubble. And you're not going to listen to anybody who tries to talk sense to you. You're just going to find reasons to say that that person is a fool, that that person just doesn't get it. Well, the big fools, the people who don't get it, are the people who are in Bitcoin and who keep buying it, not the people who don't own it or are selling it. But I want to finish up today's podcast by circling back and talking about day two of the not-so-dynamic duo's return to Capitol Hill. That is Fed Chair Powell and Treasury Secretary Yellen talking to the House of Representatives. And so in addition to not taking advantage of that opportunity to walk back his supposed hawkish stance and tightening of monetary policy, I just want to go over some of the other things that were said during that hearing. You know, first of all, both the chairman or chairwoman of the committee, Maxine Waters and Janet Yellen, they both took credit for the Biden administration and, of course, the Democrats and the Democrats in Congress, all the help that they've given the American people in their time of need, right? Because they keep talking about what they've done for everybody during COVID, how much aid the government has supplied uh, to individuals, to students, to homeowners, to small business, all the help. But, of course, none of this money actually came out of the pockets of anybody in Congress. I mean, these guys are taking credit for this generosity as if it was their own money that they were giving out. Look, anybody can be generous when you're giving away somebody else's money. It's a whole different ball game to be generous with your own money because then in theory, you're at least sacrificing something because you had money you could have spent on yourself and you chose out of the goodness of your heart to spend it on somebody else. But Politicians like Maxine Waters, they don't give up anything when they vote to spend other people's money. In fact, they get something. They get the credit without having to suffer any adverse consequences. They don't give up any of their own consumption, yet they get to play Santa Claus with the voters. But voters have to remember that what the government giveth, the government also taketh away because the government doesn't have any money. So before the government can give money to one person, it has to take it from another person. Now, sometimes it takes it from the same person 
it's giving it to. It's just that the person getting the money doesn't notice that the government is picking his pocket, right? The government's giving you money with its left hand, but now its right hand is reaching for your wallet in your back pocket and taking the money and you don't notice it. But of course, a lot of people don't notice it now because the government isn't actually reaching into anybody's pockets because it doesn't have to. It just prints money. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Save a little more this month. Chime checking accounts have features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and no monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. Banking services debit card provided by Bancorp, Bank NA, or Stride Bank NA. Members of FDIC. SpotMe eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But all that money printing to finance all that spending is the reason that prices are now going up. And so this is the consequence. So if government like Maxine Waters or Janet Yellen, if they want to take credit for giving Americans all this money, then they also have to accept the responsibility for creating all this inflation. But they don't do that. In fact, they are blaming all the inflation on COVID. That's pretty much the script that everybody's reading off of. Hey, this is not about inflation. It's just a supply shortage. It's because of the pandemic. We shut stuff down, and so there's a supply shortage. Of course, why didn't they see this coming in real time the way I did? I laid it out exactly the way it was going to transpire, yet nobody at the Fed, nobody in government was warning back in 2020 about the supply shortage that would naturally follow shutting down the economy. It's only after the fact that they're using this as an excuse to blame inflation on, but It's not because of COVID, because had the government done the right thing, demand would have declined along with supply. And so prices wouldn't be going up. But the reason demand didn't decline was because of government, because the government spent money and the Fed printed the money for the government to spend. And so because of the Fed, government and consumers kept on spending, even though they stopped working. That is the problem. It's not COVID. It's the government's response to COVID, which is why I said from the beginning that the government's cure for COVID, economically speaking, was worse than the disease. And in fact, Janet Yellen herself, during the Q&A, she tried to downplay the impact of demand because she reluctantly had to admit when she was questioned by the Republicans that all of this spending had some impact on aggregate demand and therefore prices, but she claims that it's minimal. Now, how she can know that She basically said, look, it's almost all supply. It's only a tiny bit demand, right? Of course, she's just making that up 
how can it only be a tiny bit demand when there's so much new demand because of all the money we printed? Something like 40% of all the money that the government has ever printed, it printed in the last year or something like that. So is it a shock that prices are rising given how much money we've printed? Now, of course, Janet Yellen also tried to backtrack on the fact that, yes, this extra demand may have slightly impacted inflation. And so it may be a little bit hotter than it otherwise would have been. But, you know, we had no choice. We had to do it because the economy was weak and we needed the stimulus. And after all, even the Republicans voted for all this stimulus. And so, you know, we had to do it. Well, A, we didn't have to do it. Politically speaking, they had to do it because they wanted to save their butts because they were afraid that the voters may take it out on them in the polls if they allowed the crisis. So politically speaking, they did what was expedient. But even if you're going to claim that the economy needed this, then why not say, okay, we needed to create inflation and now we have inflation and the inflation we have today is the trade-off for what we did to save the economy. So yes, our policy created the inflation we're dealing with, but dealing with inflation now is better than having to deal with an economic collapse during COVID. So this is the price we pay. And this is exactly what I said the price was going to be. When everybody was getting all this government money and the government was taking credit for giving them the money, what was I saying? Well, prices are going to go up. Everything is going to get more expensive. And then you're going to realize what all that free money costs because everybody was going to pay the price in terms of higher prices, which is why I said that the Biden administration's claim that nobody earning under $400,000 was going to get hit with the tax hike. I said that was lie because everybody is going to get hit with the inflation tax. And that tax falls particularly hard on middle and lower income workers. But also I want to talk about Yellen's comments on raising the debt ceiling. She talked about how a default on the national debt would be catastrophic for the economy. And of course it would be, but of course continuing to kick the can down the road by raising the debt ceiling is ultimately going to be even more catastrophic. I mean, first of all, Yellen said we've got to raise the debt ceiling because America needs to pay its bills in full and on time. Oh, really? When did we ever do that? How do we pay our bills in full, let alone on time? The reason we have $29 trillion of debt is because we have $29 trillion of unpaid bills. That's what debt is. We have all this debt because we don't pay our bills on time. Not only don't we pay our bills in full, we don't even pay them at all. Now, there are a lot of people that say, well, we pay our bills, we just pay it with debt. But that doesn't count as paying your bills because you're incurring another bill to pay an existing bill. So you get a new bill to replace your old bill, but the bills don't go away. See, paying bills in full on time means you pay the bill and then you're out of debt. You don't owe any money. If you pay your visa with your MasterCard, you didn't really pay off your visa because now you have debt on your MasterCard that you didn't have before you paid off your visa debt. So transferring debt from one person to another, right? If the government owes money to individuals that it is paying, but then it borrows the money from other individuals to pay those individuals, it hasn't really paid its bills. It's transferred its bills from the people who it owed money to, to bondholders, 
to whom it now owes money to. So what Janet Yellen really means is that we need to raise the debt ceiling because America can't afford to pay any of its bills. We are broke and we need to raise the debt ceiling so we can keep on not paying our bills and going deeper into debt instead of paying our bills because we can't. But the other ironic point about Yellen talking about how catastrophic a default is going to be is that if we keep on raising the debt ceiling, we're going to have to default eventually only on a much bigger debt and it's going to be a much bigger catastrophe. And in fact, the only way that we will eventually be able to avoid hyperinflation, and hopefully we can avoid hyperinflation, which would be an even bigger catastrophe than default, is by defaulting. Because if the Fed has to fight inflation and save the dollar, then the Treasury will have to default because there's no way it will be able to service the debt at the rate of interest that the Fed would have to set in the market in order to successfully fight off inflation. So default is inevitable. Therefore, catastrophe is inevitable, according to Janet Yellen. Because if we don't default now, we're going to default later. So it's just a catastrophe later rather than a catastrophe now. Only the longer we wait, the larger the catastrophe. And in fact, ironically, one Republican asked Powell specifically about the debt and the national debt, and whether or not Powell even considers the issue of solvency or the credit worthiness of the United States when it's making policy. And Powell basically said, no, that's not something that he's concerned about or not something that he's worried about, and that he did agree that the U.S. needs to return to a sustainable fiscal trajectory but that now is not the time to do it. He said the time to address the deficit is when the economy is strong. But the crazy part about that statement was that earlier in his Q&A, he described the U.S. economy as being very strong. He said, we have a very strong economy right now. Well, if the economy is very strong right now, then why can't we address the debt issue? Because he said, we have to wait until the economy is strong What is it, too strong now that we have to let it weaken from very strong to strong before we can address the debt? No, it's just that that is his stock answer. He's rehearsed that. He's memorized that. We need to get on a sustainable fiscal path, but not now, right? It's never now. We can never get on that path now because it's impossible to return to that path without creating a financial crisis. And so we always have to pretend that we have to wait until the economy is strong, even when it is strong. In fact, he just got finished telling Congress that it's very strong, but then he said, but nope, we can't address the debt right now because we have to wait for the economy to be strong. In fact, another lie that Powell told specifically about the debt is he was asked if he considers the impact of higher interest rates on the federal budget when the Fed sets interest rate policy, and he said no which of course is ridiculous. He has to consider that because if you're going to consider the economy, you have to consider the impact on the government of higher rates, particularly the impact on the deficits and how much larger those deficits are going to be if interest rates are higher. And also higher interest rates may slow the economy, which means government tax receipts will slow just as expenditures increases. So raising interest rates has a huge impact 
on the budget deficit, which means how much money the Federal Reserve may be forced to print, how can that not be an issue? How can the Fed not consider that? Of course they consider it. That's probably one of their primary considerations. And again, is one of the reasons that rates are so low, but because it's so critical, the Fed has to keep lying about it because that's a cat the Fed does not want to let out of the bag. Now, another thing that Janet Yellen pointed out as the big reason for the inflation was that Americans just started spending a lot of money on goods rather than services during the pandemic. Well, meanwhile, the economy is reopened. So you still have lots of spending on services, but the spending on stuff, goods, has continued. That's why we have these record trade deficits. But the question is, where did they get the money? They got the money from the government. Spending on goods would have come way down but for all that stimulus money. And that highlights the underlying weakness of the U.S. economy in that we don't produce the stuff. We have to import all those goods. Why doesn't the U.S. economy have the factories necessary to produce the goods that Americans are consuming? It's because we have a fundamentally weak economy. We have this service sector bubble economy. And what's happening now just provides more evidence of that. Yet they want to completely ignore that and act as if, well, you know, people are just spending more money on stuff. And that's all because of COVID without A, looking at the source of the money but B, dealing with the underlying issue that we don't make the stuff and that these trade deficits themselves are part of the problem that is ultimately going to really weigh down the dollar and put even more upward pressure on prices. But again, the Republicans, most of them still don't want to blame the Fed for inflation. I mean, some of them are, but a lot of them still want to shift the blame exclusively to Biden and the Democrats. In fact, one of these Republican congressmen specifically came out and said she doesn't blame the Fed for inflation. She blames the Democrats in Congress. Well, you know, it takes two to tango. The Democrats can't spend what the Fed doesn't print. So if you're blaming the spending, you have to blame the printing because without the printing, there would be no spending. But of course, one of the reasons that Republicans don't want to do that is because they're also complicit because they voted for deficit spending when Trump was president and they also did not object when Trump demanded that the Fed print the money to pay for that spending too. But there was one congressman, I forget his name, who actually read from Milton Friedman about inflation and money and how governments never accept responsibility for the inflation they create and basically said, hey, you can't taper. You need to turn off the printing presses right now. You need to go cold turkey. You need to stop printing money now because you're not going to fight inflation by creating less of it. That congressman, of course, was 100% right, but the Fed is not going to do that because if it did do that, then everything would collapse right now and it would be a lot more obvious what the props have been and the Fed would be forced to reverse policy quicker and it would be harder for the Fed to make up a lie as to why it's doing it. Of course, one of the biggest lies that was being told was by Janet Yellen and some of the other uh, Democrats on the committee who kept insisting that the Build Back Better bill was paid for, that the tax increases in that bill offset other tax cuts that are also in that bill, plus all the additional spending. That is complete fraud. There is no way 
that this bill is even close to being paid for. The government is not going to collect anywhere near the tax revenues that it thinks, and all of the programs are going to cost many times more than what the government has budgeted. But Yellen has to insist that the BB Better plan is paid for because if she admits that it is financed by deficits, then she also has to acknowledge that it adds to the inflation problem. So the only way she can claim it doesn't is by saying that no new money is going to be printed to pay for it because the bill is paid for by tax hikes, which in and of itself is an admission that prior government stimulus that wasn't paid for did add to inflation. She just claims that it was necessary. Well, if it was necessary, then let the public know that what the price they're paying now for that necessary spending was inflation. But I think really the most ridiculous comment on fiscal policy came from Powell himself because Powell was asked to comment on what the effect of inflation might be from a Build Back Better bill that was passed and if it wasn't paid for. If the CBO's estimates were correct that the bill itself was going to lead to larger deficits, this congressman wanted Powell to say, do you consider this in policy and what is your opinion? Do you think the Build Back Better bill will have an effect on inflation? Do you think it will make inflation worse? And Powell's answer was, I can't answer that question because I'm not allowed to comment on fiscal policy. And of course, he was not being asked to comment on the policy itself. The congressman didn't say, do you think this is a good idea, the Build Back Better plan? Do you think it's good for America? Do you think it will make America a better country? Do you think it will help raise living standards? That wasn't the question. The question was, do you think this policy will affect inflation? Because the Fed has a dual mandate and one of them is inflation. And so obviously, if the Fed has a mandate to control inflation, doesn't it have to consider the impact on inflation of any fiscal policy that's been proposed or that's been enacted? It is a complete lie for the Fed to refuse to answer that question on the grounds that it can't comment on fiscal policy when it absolutely can comment on inflation. And it has to be able to tell Congress what effect on inflation it believes fiscal policy will have. Because after all, if Powell thinks a particular fiscal policy is inflationary and will result in tighter monetary policy, isn't it his duty to warn Congress in advance, hey, what you guys are about to do, you may think it's good for the country. We're not going to comment on whether it's good or bad, but we can tell you that we think it's going to create inflation. And as a result, we're going to have to raise rates. So why don't you factor that in uh, to your policy? That's what Powell should do. But he's a coward. He's a liar. He doesn't want to tell the truth to Congress or the American public. So he finds a convenient way out by just hiding behind this false pretense that he can't comment on fiscal policy when he's not even being asked to comment on the policy, just the policy's effect on inflation, which is absolutely something that not only should the Fed comment on, but Powell is required to comment on it. I mean, what the hell is he doing 
in that meeting if he can't comment on the effect fiscal policy is going to have on inflation. Why even have the hearing? What's he there for? How is he going to provide any guidance on policy if he can't comment on the effect that policy is going to have on inflation and on his own monetary policy? But I actually, I think the most significant thing that Powell actually said, at least for the markets, and one of the main reasons that we continue to get the sell-off in risk assets is that for the first time, Powell admitted that he no longer considers the inflation risk to be small or that it is not persistent. In other words, he now sees a substantial risk of inflation that is persistent, a complete 180 from where he was before when it was transitory, small and nothing to worry about. He now acknowledges that it's not just certain prices that are rising, prices that are specifically related to the reopening, but this is systemic across the economy, that it's pervasive, that inflation is everywhere, and it's a big problem. And that is what is scaring the markets, because the markets assume that just because Powell has acknowledged that there's a big inflation problem, that he's going to do something to solve it. What the markets haven't figured out yet is just because there is a problem doesn't mean the Fed has the ability or even the desire to do something about it because it can't. And eventually, it's going to be forced to make that admission that not only is inflation not transitory, but that it's here to stay and that it's just a price we're going to have to pay for the economic policies that we have no choice but to pursue because higher inflation is an acceptable trade-off for a stronger economy and better economic growth. And it's not worth fighting inflation at the cost of destroying the economy. Of course, runaway inflation will be even more destructive to the economy, but that'll take the markets even longer to figure out. And the politicians don't care about that because they care about the next election, not the long-term health of the U.S. economy. But individual investors have to care about the long-term performance of their portfolio, which is why you have to stay the course with an inflation-proof portfolio and recognize that the opportunities that the market is giving you now in that investors still don't understand that inflation is not going to go away, that it's going to get much worse, and that the dollar is going much lower, and that gold and other commodities are going much higher. Oh, 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 oh